Strong worker organizations, responsible regulators, and the presence of worker-owned options as a competitive check on the companies. In such a world, gig labor might just have a chance to live up to the promise of its early days. That's Juliet Shore, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Juliet Shore on gig economics. At first blush, it seems like a dream job and a great way to make money. You always wanted to be your own boss. You're free and independent. You work where and when you want. It could be a side job giving you that extra income you need. The gig economy has exploded in recent years, but it's not all that it's cranked out to be. Workers are vulnerable. There are no benefits. Some workers wind up working for peanuts. With no regular income, the gig economy can be stressful, especially if you have a crisis. What are the ins and outs of gig economics? To talk about this issue is Juliet Shore. She's an award-winning economist and sociologist at Boston College. She's the author of many books, including The Overworked American, True Wealth, and After the Gig. She spoke at the University of Oregon in Eugene in mid-October. And now, Juliet Shore. In 2013, my research team interviewed Devon, a self-described Jamaican, meaning a Jamaican-American, from a diverse inner city, uh, inner suburb of Chicago. An enthusiastic participant in what was then called the sharing economy, Devin was on a break from his regular job, which was as a tour manager for global brands such as Nike and PlayStation, and he was earning money on an errand site called TaskRabbit, where he was the number one rabbit rated in Chicago. He was also hosting on Airbnb. He was offering a free couch on couch surfing, and he was renting through Zipcar. Devin loved the freedom to control his own schedule and not have a boss, and he believed these apps were the pathway to a new, more humane economy. Things are going full circle, he explained. In the beginning, we used to do everything for ourselves, and then and we were very hospitable towards each other. And then corporations started moving in, and everyone went there. And now, due to corruption, people started being anti-corporation. People are going back to helping each other again because it's easier, especially with the advent of the Internet. And notice, he thought of all these sharing platforms as something different from corporations. Devon's attitude was common in the early days of the sharing economy. Our informants thought the apps were a route to social change, an alternative to big soulless corporations, and a more moral way to organize the economy. They believed in what my team and I called the idealist discourse, a rhetoric which framed platforms as bringing economic, social, and environmental benefits. Economic benefits included using idle assets more intensively, such as renting or loaning out a spare room, an empty vehicle, tool, or other household item. This was supposed to yield environmental benefits by reducing the demand for hotels, new vehicles, and consumer goods. Other economic benefits were extra money, especially for a middle class with stagnant incomes. 
And as Devin stressed, this new way to earn came without the hassles of ordinary employment. No boss, no schedule to adhere to, adhere to pure freedom. There were social benefits too. Airbnb hosts and guests would spend time together in cultural exchange. A ride in a lift, originally called ride sharing, began with a fist bump, the passenger in the front seat, and a nearly obligatory conversation. Loaning or renting goods in the neighborhood would help people to meet each other and form community. And these apps were also supposed to provide access because renting was cheaper than owning and because they offered opportunity to less privileged people. The apps were also supposed to end racial discrimination. Uber promised an end to blacks' inability to get taxis to stop or drive into certain neighborhoods. Scholars argued that ratings and reputational information would eliminate what's called statistical discrimination and benefit BIPOC hosts or earners with good ratings. And the companies use this idealist discourse, economic, social, and environmental claims to, uh, to promote their point of view. When I did the first national polling on some of these issues, Americans seemed to agree with most of the idealist discourse. They believed that they had a better environmental impact, that they would save money, and that it would build relationships. So all the aspects of the idealist discourse were bought by the, uh, by the American public. And this was the first, by the way, random sample polling that was done on the, on the uh, sharing economy. This was all made possible by new digital tools, search and matching algorithms to gather and filter options and make person-to-person -person exchange more efficient, crowdsourcing of ratings and reputation to weed out bad actors and maintain quality, mapping software for driving and delivery. The sharing economy was built on solving the challenges of what I've called stranger sharing and making person-to-person -person exchange safer and more efficient. Fast forward a decade. Nearly all the assumptions and predictions of the idealist discourse lie in tatters. The environmental claims were the most suspect from the beginning. Rather than reduce emissions and environmental impacts, Airbnb, Uber, and Lyft have increased the footprints of these services. Ridehail increases new car registrations, vehicle miles traveled, congestion, and it undermines public transit ridership. The sharing activities that might have reduced carbon impacts, such as loaning or renting tools and household goods, fizzled out almost right away. Americans are actually not all that interested in sharing things with other people. Only one in three would like to share more things like tools and household items. So that one really didn't make a lot of sense from the beginning. What about the social benefits? While there is some increased sociability with Airbnb, Many of these services quickly reverted to arm's length perfunctory transactions. Lyft and its friendly fist bump faded fast. Eventually, Uber introduced the quote, shut up and drive button on its app. So passengers who no longer sit in the front can tell the driver they prefer not to talk. Research by my team and others has found evidence of continuing racial discrimination on Airbnb against both hosts and guests. Now what about the impacts on labor? The companies promised a new way to work, no boss, scheduling freedom, become a micro-entrepreneur, and good pay on top of it. 
While the idealist discourse depicted a happy worker with a lucrative side hustle, a decade later, the newspapers were full of stories of Uber drivers sleeping in their cars. Scheduling freedom was replaced by endless hours of driving just to make ends meet. Workers faced unfair termination, deactivation is, is what it's called in app lingo, with no appeals or even justification. When the pandemic hit, the companies failed to protect workers with PPE, grudgingly offered sick pay, but with conditions so onerous, few met them, and turned to the government to bail them out. So what happened? How did we go from sharing to exploiting? Was the idealist discourse always what's called share washing, the equivalent of greenwashing? A fig leaf to hide predatory behavior, as some contend? Did things start out well, but take an exploitative turn as the companies tried to grow rapidly under difficult market conditions? Now, before I get to answers to those questions, let me tell you a little bit about the research I conducted and some of the unique aspects of the gig economy that we discovered. We began in 2011, first studying small, non commercial efforts to create new forms of exchange, time banks, food swaps, maker spaces. But within a year, the for-profit apps were scaling so rapidly that we turned our attention to them. With a team of seven graduate students and a couple more who sort of were on the, on the margins, we, uh, which was funded by the MacArthur Foundation, we began interviewing users of commercial platforms like Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, etc. Since 2009, I've been collaborating with engineers and sociologists on an NSF-funded program called the Algorithmic Workplace, studying additional platforms. These include Instacart, DoorDash, Care.com, which is the Uber of caring labor, Amazon Flex and Prime, and a small delivery platform we call Bring Your Package. There are a total of 16 platforms. Olio is a food sharing app, but 16 platforms that we've looked at. We come to some different points of view than much of the literature because we have a multi-platform study. Um, so we can think about platforms across a whole range of them. Many of the studies have just been done on Uber or just on food delivery. We've pursued multiple research strategies. We've done about 400 interviews across these two projects with workers. We've analyzed big data on Airbnb. Bring Your Package gave us their data. One of my collaborators, engineer collaborators, actually wrote their algorithm for them. We've scraped data from Uber People, which is the largest online forum for gig workers to look at strike at resist, uh, activity resistance and how workers are using these digital forums. And I personally have had informal access to a lot of founders and key people in the platform ecosystem, uh, in part because I was one of the first researchers studying it and they started seeking me out. My collaborators and I have written more than 30 journal articles, chapters in books and other pieces of writing. So back to the question, how did things go from great to awful in such a short space of time? and what, if anything, can be done about it. To understand what happened, we need to look at the particularities of the platform labor force and how it created a new kind of, uh, the platform work and how it created a new kind of labor force. So 
This evening, I'm going to focus on the work and labor side of this. And I'm also going to focus on the largest platforms, Uber, Lyft, driving and delivery. So DoorDash, Instacart, Uber, Lyft. They have the biggest labor forces, and they're also the ones with the most problematic practices. These are well-known apps with a common structure and market positioning. The skills required to work on these apps are quite general among the population, meaning lots of people can drive, can go to a grocery store, um, and deliver items, which means that workers face a lot of competition from each other, and the companies have a relatively large labor pool to pull from. On all of the driving and delivery apps, workers are engaged as independent contractors with none of the rights of employees. No minimum wage, unemployment or accident protection, no health insurance, no right to non-discrimination or non-harassment. Mitch, who was combining Lyft, Postmates and DoorDash as he tried to build an audio engineering business on the side. And this was something that we found fairly commonly among uh, workers that we talked to. They had side uh, activities that they were engaged in and the platform work was, was enabled them to earn money while they were trying to build a business or learn a skill or do something else. Is it fair to me, he asks, to have to own, pay for, maintain my own car, gas, insurance, parking, cleaning, dealing with the smell of food? Clearly, he did not think it was. Independent contractors' status also lets the company off the hook for its share of contributions to Social Security, unemployment, and workers' comp. The companies have also outsourced quality control and human resource functions onto consumers through the rating systems. Other features of the app include open access, meaning just about anyone can join with minimal screening requirements. It's pretty much just a criminal record that could keep you off some of these uh, apps and depending on the app, you know, the level of criminal record varies. They allow what's called multi-homing, which means workers can shift back and forth across apps. And the fact that workers and not the company choose scheduling and the number of hours of work. And this will turn out to be very important in our analysis. In the early days, the platforms were pretty great. They offered high wages for work with generalized skills, and I'm going to call it that rather than what, the, you know, the standard terminology is unskilled work, and that's not an accurate way to describe what these people are doing. They do have skills. It's just that these are skills that lots of people have. So generalized skills. Conditions were good. Workers often expressed that the company has our back. But that began to change as the platforms began to reduce earnings. Danny, a ride-hail driver, explained, it used to be 20 hours could get you $800. Now that same, now that same might get you maybe 400. The rates were 275 a mile, now it's 125 a mile. And I checked a few days ago on websites that give rates. Uber is now paying 80 cents a mile. Between 2014 and 2018, drivers suffered a 53% collapse in their monthly earnings, according to data from J.P. Morgan Chase, which looks at bank accounts and they see where these earnings are coming in from, so it's the most accurate data that we have, from monthly averages of about 1,500 a month to just under 800, 783. 
Of course, during the pandemic, the ride home market collapsed. The companies have lured drivers back with incentives, but gas prices and, and another round of squeezing workers from the companies um, has put them back into a losing game. Drivers we interviewed more recently report working full-time and that once they calculate depreciation and other expenses, admittedly at IRS rates, which are a little bit high depending on the car that you have, but they're, they're reporting making you know, basically nothing, $7,000 a year after accounting for, those, uh, for all those expenses. One reason for low hourly rates is that idling time, which the apps were supposed to reduce by their superior efficiency, meaning you're trying to get a ride and you're just sitting around waiting for a passenger, idling time has risen to nearly 30% of work time in some places. There are too many drivers chasing too few passengers. Now another problem with the apps is lack of transparency. Many workers don't know how much they're making. They pay attention to gross receipts for an evening or a week, but they don't track their time carefully and many don't have a great way of figuring out expenses. The companies are constantly changing things, so it's very hard for workers to figure out the best strategies for earning. One person we interviewed, he was a food delivery courier. We asked him, how much do you make per hour? Many of, many of these workers can't tell you. I really haven't done a calculation to see how much I've made per hour, he said. I just checked last night and I made like 500, 505 in the past three or four weeks working for four to six hours. So if we say four times five is 20, times four is 80, so 80 hours, 500, 625. That was the first time he calculated that he was making far below the minimum wage. The New York Times had a story about Para, an app developed by a former Uber employee that helps workers figure this all out. Go figure. The companies are taking legal action to try and stop it from operating. So why have the companies been squeezing workers so hard? Why have conditions deteriorated so much? Well, we can give a simple answer, was, is that they can or that's what companies do. And that's true to a certain extent, but there's much more to the story. Many companies offer good wages, benefits, and working conditions. Platforms claimed superior efficiency in the fields that they are in. If that were true, they should be model employers. But of course they're not. The better answer is that there is not a viable business model for what the companies have been trying to achieve. Many scholars point to the role of venture capital. It's well known that for tech companies, VCs want early growth rather than profits, so they pump in lots of money so the company can expand. And this, of course, is what happened with all of these platforms. One of our respondents, who was a delivery courier on a, a platform called Favor, no longer, I think no longer operating, had been a startup entrepreneur herself, so she knew, the, she knew what was going on. Favor is not a real company, she says. Like, they just have a bunch of investment money. Are they making a profit? No, no way, it's a bubble. She felt that the pricing structure on the app had the wrong mix between the delivery fee, the tipping, and the volume, as well as unsustainably low wages for couriers. 
Money from angel investors, she said, it's just not going to make you a business if you're relying on millions and millions of dollars in funding to do something that we can do with $200, by which she meant that couriers buying bikes for $200 and organizing the work themselves. It's all going to go down the toilet, she said. And of course, for many platforms, it did. This is just something that just came out today, but it's the uh, what happened to share prices on IPOs of all of these companies. Airbnb, which you all know what that is. Fiverr, which is a freelancing, online freelancing. They're the only two whose share prices haven't declined. Look at Uber. I'm going to talk more about Uber. Uh, a 39% decline. Lyft, an 82%. You know, these companies had outsized valuations from the VCs. They don't have a business model to go with it. Consider Uber's experience. The story from the company is that Uber is the Amazon of transportation, implying that the company is efficient and able to achieve network effects. Network effects are present when the addition of new members to the serve, new users to the service enhances its values for everyone. So Airbnb has network effects. The more listings, the better it is. Facebook has network effects. But Uber is about as far from Amazon as it can be, despite the fact that a credulous press and politicians bought this line. And two weeks ago, I asked a question about this in a, in a workshop in New York, and the former head of the Taxi and Limousine Commission, now the deputy mayor of New York, actually gave me this erroneous comparison, and she said, oh, but Uber is the Amazon of transportation. And the reason it's not is because network effects are minimal for in-person local transport services like transportation and delivery. The critical mass of users occurs very quickly because we're dealing with a small in-person service. We're not dealing with Facebook or Amazon, which is shipping goods all over the world. The network only needs to be very small. In reality, the model was designed to achieve something else, market dominance, or what you would know more colloquially as monopoly power. And so far, it has gotten that, to the detriment of drivers, riders, city governments, and residents. Once Uber destroyed the competition, it planned to jack up prices and make super profits. At the core of the exploitation on these platforms is the fact that these are not profitable businesses at the scale the companies are trying to achieve, fancy technology notwithstanding. You know, this is where you can see the difference with Airbnb. Airbnb just takes a reasonable fraction of every exchange. I mean, not, it got a little bit higher, but it's, it's not a predator. It's, you know, taking its 15% or whatever it is. Its users are happy. Its problems lie elsewhere. For the first decade of its existence, Uber and Lyft subsidized rides by 40%. So every ride that you took was subsidized by these venture capitalists at 40% in order to get people hooked onto the rides and get this very large market. Many of these apps offered unrealistically low prices to begin with to get consumers hooked. I just said that. But pricing below cost is predatory behavior and illegal if it's anti-competitive, which it was in the case of RideHail. Uber set out to destroy what it calls Taxi, with a capital T, an industry that provided thousands of jobs and an immigrant stepping stone to a better life. 
And they've succeeded in many places. It's almost impossible to get a taxi from where I live now. In a little-known twist to the story, Uber adopted a playbook pioneered by the Koch brothers who had started the war on taxi some years earlier as part of their campaign to destroy all government regulation. After destroying taxi, Uber set its sights on public transport, and they have weakened it. In a rare transparent moment, Uber named public transportation as a competitor in its IPO documents, thereby giving the lie to its pronouncements that it was not trying to compete with public transportation, and then it quickly retracted its admission. But people can also walk, cycle, not go somewhere, or drive themselves. This is a really important point to understand about ride hail. So this was a, a, a study done by users of ride hail, and it asked the question, if Uber or Lyft was unavailable, what transportation alternatives would you use for the trips? Fewer trips, I'd walk, I'd take a bike, I'd use public transit, I'd carpool, I'd drive. What that means is that when the prices went up, these people had substitutes and they would find them. And it, it's, it's a really strong piece of evidence about my basic point, which is that the market for ride hail is only viable in a much, as, as a much smaller market than what Uber was trying to do, its so-called market dominance to own transportation. Once people have to pay these high prices, which is inevitably where the, where the industry was going, it's a very shrunken market. Since the pandemic, the wheels fell off the bus, or should I say they fell off the Uber, which is that the, the true economics of Uber came to be understood by more. Now, there are people who have understood this all along, but here you can see the cumulative losses of Uber, $32 billion, the largest losses of any company in human history. You can see why they're squeezing the drivers, because it doesn't have a business model, it has to squeeze the workers, because it, its basic economics just make no sense. Prices have gone up substantially, making ride hail more expensive than taxis in some cities and circumstances. The companies are pocketing more of the revenue and squeezing drivers who are also suffering from the gas price interest increases. Contrary to the claims of superior efficiency, ride hail is more expensive to operate than taxi. Think of all of the tech costs, the bloated corporate payrolls, the lobbyists, the, the, the law they bought for more than $200 million in California, the state to your south. They, Uber hired five people from my son's PhD class alone two years ago at, at very high salaries. Ride Hill is also no longer servicing the less profitable areas that taxi didn't want to service. That was one of its big claims. And Uber has brought us an even worse product at an even higher price. And its shift into food delivery is not going to help because food delivery has even worse economics than ride hail, lower margins, a less profitable industry to be in. The bottom line is that the economics of these platforms don't allow for decent treatment except at a much higher price point. And that means a much smaller market than what Uber planned. So we can have ride hail, but it's gonna be small like taxi was. It's not gonna be there for people who just don't feel like walking 
you know, 15 minutes, you know, to the college students who don't want to walk to a bar that's 15 minutes away and they get in an Uber. Okay. A New York Times writer figured this out about a year ago, but his spot-on analysis doesn't seem to have broken through Uber's PR, which has been magnificent. If they'd gone into the PR industry, I would say they'd be a very a good company. And I just want to read this quote, because it, he, he really nailed it. Profits are good for investors, of course, and while it's painful to pay subsidy-free prices for our extravagances, there's also a certain justice to it. Hiring a private driver to shuttle you across Los Angeles during rush hour should cost more than $16 if everyone in that transaction is being fairly compensated. Getting someone to clean your house, do your laundry, or your, deliver your dinner should be a luxury if there's no exploitation involved. The fact that some high-end services are no longer easily affordable by the merely semi-affluent may seem like a worrying development, but maybe it's a sign of progress. What I didn't like about this is that he called it a millennial lifestyle subsidy, which is somewhat true, but it's not only millennials who are using these. A sensible economic system wouldn't enable these businesses. Instead, ours has thrown tens of hundreds of billions at it. You're listening to Juliet Shore on Gig Economics. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Predictably, the degradation of wages and working conditions led to changing demographics. At the beginning, gig workers were almost all college graduates. Many had graduate degrees. And while some entered because they couldn't find employment just after graduating into the Great Recession, they weren't a desperate bunch. They were also mostly white. However, as the downward trajectory intensified, the labor force changed. We don't have great national data, but it's evident in individual cities. In Los Angeles, the labor force grew in, in Ridehale grew older, more non-native, and more likely to be supporting a family. A Bay Area study just before the pandemic found that 63% of all Ridehale and delivery workers uh, relied on these platforms for their primary source of income, and 78% were workers of color, 56% immigrants. 32% reported sometimes are often sleeping in their cars before or after performing app work. They're also much older than what we found in the early days, median age of 40. When we started out, it was mostly recent college grads. The changing workforce also put in place dynamics that intensified precarity and exploitation. Immigrants, people with dependents, and BIPOC workers are all more disadvantaged in the labor market. They have fewer good options so they are more likely to stay rather than exit when the companies squeeze them. Willingness to stay raises one of the major findings of my research, that the gig labor force is uniquely heterogeneous and that this helps explain the exploitation and precarity. Earlier, I noted a couple of features of gig work that are at the center of the model, the ability to choose schedules and to work as much or as little as one wants. This is a rare feature in the U.S. labor market, indeed in most labor markets. So the conventional workplace model is that the employer controls hours and the labor process. And it's something that 
that has really gone under the radar, I think, in a lot of ways in, in understanding, certainly in, the ec in, in labor economics. So there are at least two reasons that the, their model makes sense for the companies, which is giving workers the, the ability to choose their hours. One, the services we're discussing today, drivery, driving and delivery, are an on-demand service for customers. So the companies need a flexible labor force to use surge pricing incentives and so forth to match supply and demand. And they're good at that. That's, what, that's one of the things the algorithms do. Second, requiring fixed schedules or minimum hours of work would undermine their claim that these people are independent contractors. Instead, they use gamification and other kinds of incentives and punishments to adjust labor supply. They tout the flexibility they offer as a major attraction of this type of work. So in the platform model, the employer cedes control over hours and some aspects of the labor process and greatly reduces barriers to entry. Shop with Instacart, be your own boss, work five hours a month if you want. The platform's still there for you. And it is. Across most of the platforms we've studied, the ability to choose one's schedule really matters to workers. For some, it's because they have other fixed obligations like childcare or other things, or they're running a business. Some are disabled and don't know when they're gonna be able to work. And the apps are a huge, this, this freedom is a huge uh, advantage and boon for them. Others just like the freedom. It's part of the being your own boss that many workers really appreciate. In a world where bosses in lower paying jobs can be pretty crappy, it's important not to underestimate how much this matters to workers. While a minority of workers may do most of the work, there's tremendous diversity in hours across the labor force. And this is where that heterogeneity comes in. Now, scheduling flexibility plus the open access nature of the model means that workers' experiences are very different or heterogeneous. We found that whether or not the worker depended on the platform to pay their basic living expenses, and that was a question we asked them in all of our interviews and surveys, that had a large impact on their experiences. Um, what we call supplemental workers were far more satisfied, had more say over what they did, and were less controlled by the algorithm. And on some platforms, they could earn higher wages by being choosier. And what I mean by less controlled by the algorithm was they, were, they just didn't always follow the rules. The algorithm tells them to do one thing, they do another. They lie to the algorithm. They, you know, they just didn't care. They don't care about the ratings, etc. Talking about a friend, one of our respondents explained the logic. Talking about his friend. He charges 45 an hour, but he doesn't care because he has another full-time income. So he's like, you want me to heavy lift for you? I don't care if you choose me or not. He has leverage. We had one guy who didn't like waiting in line, but on, on one of the platforms we did a lot of work on TaskRabbit, waiting in line when a new iPhone came out was a popular task that people would put on iPhone. This guy would charge $150 to wait online for an iPhone because he didn't like to wait online. And by the way, he got people, people choosing him because he had a good rating. Supplemental earners are able to avoid dangerous situation, situations, reject jobs with even a whiff of scam, that's a whole other story, and tailor their experiences to meet their needs. In contrast, 
Dependent workers are more likely to be earning poverty wages, to be put into dangerous situations, to worry about ratings and deactivation, to feel controlled by the algorithm, and to be on the job at times when the pay is lousy. Platform work is the 21st century version of the notorious piecework system in which workers toiled long and hard for almost nothing. That's the kind of desperate, exploitative experience that many dependent workers have reported. They're often in debt for the vehicles. They lose scheduling flexibility because they have to work so much. And I'm going to tell you the story of one guy who's just, it's a heartbreaking story. His name was Kendrick. Kenrick. It's a made-up name. He had a decent job with benefits doing satellite TV installation. When Uber came around, quote, it was the best part-time job I ever had, and I loved doing it. You know, you work your own hours. No one forces you to go out there. It was great. It didn't matter whether I made a dollar or I made 200. It was part-time extra money in my pocket. His installation job was dead-end, and he wanted to earn more, so he decided to do Uber full-time turned into a nightmare. He had to buy a new vehicle because of excessive wear and tear and maintenance. The rates fell. He developed back pain from sitting in the car too long. He was hoping for more time with his family, but found, quote, that for a driver to really make it out there, you know, he has to work a minimum of 12 hours plus. He's working seven days a week, needs everything he earns to pay his basic expenses, which means he hasn't been able to set anything aside for the tax bill at the end of the year. He and his wife are subletting their living room on Airbnb, and honestly, who is gonna to rent to stay in someone's living room in anticipation of tax day? It's scary, he says, and I am definitely wanting to get out of the business because I am going to put myself in a big hole. Actually, he already had. Now, why is this distinction between dependent and supplemental workers so important? Well, one reason is it shows, back to my earlier point, the companies are free riding on conventional employers. Gig work is really only viable as a supplemental earner with benefits, decent pay, and security from another employer. But it also means these workers are very hard to organize. Supplementals are not invested in the platform, they're shorter term, they're harder to get to put in the time and effort necessary for successful collective action. In conventional workplaces, there's more similarity of situation and it's easier to make common cause. Heterogeneity of situation impedes the development of a collective identity, which is necessary for unionization or other kind of collective action. Add the spatial dispersion, the individualization of the whole process, and the fact that many of these workers don't know other drivers or deliverers. While there's some organizing going on, it's proving to be very difficult. A series of flash strikes on apps looked promising in 2020, but sustained labor action of the sort that we're seeing in other places, Starbucks, Amazon, it hasn't developed. There is something surprising about this, given that workers shift near, that the platforms shift nearly all the risk of these jobs onto the workers. In our research, we've identified many of those risks of not earning enough to feed one's family, of being arbitrarily deactivated, of doing a job but canceling it because you're afraid and not getting paid because you're afraid you're going to get a bad rating, 
of having the platform hire so many workers that you can't get jobs, of being poorly treated by restaurants where you're picking up food, of being injured or even killed on the job with no compensation. Workers have talked to us about being harassed in neighborhoods where one seems not to belong based on their race or class. The companies won't give them company-branded equipment because that's another, they're worried it will, we think, it, it will make them seem like employees. So they're in their own cars, in their own clothing, having guns drawn on them, having dogs sicked on them. They report being physically and verbally attacked by customers, getting parking tickets, being scammed by customers, a practice that really grew during the pandemic, of being tip-baited, lured to accept a job by a large tip, which is removed by the customer after the work is done. And yet, among ride hail, shoppers, and food deliverers, we found that only 11% of workers held the companies responsible for these conditions. So we did an analysis of, of 70 workers in those three platforms. We developed their orientation to risk, the risk that they had to face. We asked them, you know, what are the risks? We classified them, and then we said, how did they think about the risks? Oppositional were the ones who thought, well, the company should do something about it. All of these other groups either thought, well, maybe they should, but you can't beat City Hall, resign submission. Only 11% 11 had uh, what we call oppositional attitudes or what in another era we might have called a working class consciousness. The large majority felt that the shift of risks onto the workers was acceptable. This sort of illustrates what Uber scholar Katie Wells and her colleagues have identified as what she calls low expectations. U.S. workers have been made to feel that companies owe them very little, that they're on their own, and that they should bear the risks of making a living. So let me end with a few words about what can be done. The precarity and predation associated with gig labor are not inevitable. There are solutions if we can muster enough worker and public pressure. The most straightforward path is the one taken by New York City. And I have to, you know, in all fairness to that deputy mayor, she was running the Taxi and Limousine Commission when they put in a pretty good system. A rare but important alliance of app-based and taxi drivers plus a democratic government and an active regulatory body, that TLC in, in New York, instituted a decent minimum wage so it's going to probably go up to $30 because of inflation or more this year, and that's including expenses. And that includes idling time. So whenever they're on the app trying to get work, they get paid. The companies have not left New York City. Now, that victory was made possible by a strong union presence and also by an alliance between taxi and gig workers. That's one route. An interesting aspect of the New York City situation is that they're still independent contractors, but the city forces the government to adhere to minimum standards. A second path forward is to reclassify gig workers as employees, and this is what AB5 did in, in California. One issue here is that few gig workers want to be reclassified. The work on risk I just referenced, we found almost nobody who preferred to be an employee. It's complicated, or as scholar Vina Dubal has called it, it's an uber ambivalence. <laughs> Many want the protections of employment, but they're worried they'll lose the flexibility. Low pay plus a boss just seems too much to bear. 
But there's no reason to think the companies have to take away the flexibility and ability give, uh, and the ability of workers to set their own hours. In fact, the on-demand nature of the services suggests that the platforms need a flexible labor force, but they threaten to take away flexibility at every turn. They are insistent that it's a, a trade-off between flexibility and employment. This company, in anticipation of AB5, in 2020, turned its workers all into employees, all these gig workers. And they gave us our data. We've done the first study of what happens when a gig labor force goes from IC to employment. And what we found is really interesting. It can work, and there was minimal, if any, impact on flexibility. The company did not change the scheduling system at all. It's true, it was somewhat more expensive for the company, but efficiency and quality improved and management told us that things were better. Some platforms might need to institute some partial shift system. This one had a shift system, um, but it's still extremely flexible that workers can sign up whenever they want and they can cancel and so forth. And many of the delivery companies use shift systems as it is. The third option, which we've also studied, is worker-owned platforms, or what are called platform cooperatives. And we did the first academic study of an, a platform cooperative. It's not in Ridehill. It was a photographer's co-op. Extremely successful, both financially successful and very, very happy uh, uh, artists. There's tremendous enthusiasm for platform co-ops, and a number of them have been formed, including in Ridehill and Delivery. They've had more success in Europe where there's a much bigger co-op sector. But while this model has a lot to recommend it, without capital or some other advantage, it's unlikely that any form, co-op or not, can compete in these already monopolized markets. It's possible that another type of advantage could come from city governments. If they were to set up platforms, they'd have a chance. But so far, no city has taken that step. But California, uh, San Francisco was talking about it for delivery at one point, but nothing's happened. So in the end, I think a solution likely involves all three of these pathways. Unionization, strong worker organizations, responsible regulators, and the presence of worker-owned options as a competitive check on the companies. In such a world, gig labor might just have a chance to live up to the promise of its early days. Thank you. Thanks for your talk. I'm curious what you think could facilitate the expansion of worker ownership, and given that you described a lot of the risks um, associated with a lot of these platforms, like, what are the barriers and how do we, like, move past them? I mean, we do know historically from research that access to capital is really key for cooperatives. Until a couple of years ago, there were only 250 worker cooperatives in this country. And there are now maybe, what, the last number I heard was 400, you know, maybe there are 500 at this point. So it's, it's been really, really difficult I thought it might be a little bit easier in the driver co-ops uh, because workers can be on, on the co-op app as well as the other apps at the same time. But I don't think in, in the U.S., I don't think any of these are, are really scaling yet. The big issue is how do you get people off Uber and Lyft and, and onto these 
onto these apps. Um, so I think marketing, money for marketing and advertising is really key. Capital is the biggest barrier. It has historically been the biggest barrier to uh, worker co-ops, according to you know the research that I've seen. Thanks for a really interesting talk. Your examples were about people really making incorrect calculations about what they could make as a laborer on these platforms. You know, you had the person who figured out they were making six twenty-five an hour, and then suddenly they couldn't make ends meet. Um, these are really difficult calculations to figure out. At the end of the day, you buy your own car, your own insurance, all this other stuff, whether it'll be better for you than in your current situation. And it does seem like if people were actually had that calculation ready at hand, they, you could see collapse of the supply of drivers for Uber. <laughs> and it could really matter uh, and really obviously erode their, their kind of monopsony power over labor. So, Well, it's interesting because, of course, a standard economic model would suggest the kind of dynamics that you just articulated so well. And there are apps that are out there that help people track their expenses and so forth. And some of these people are, are pretty good at it. You know, so I gave you some examples of people who are a little more on the clueless side. So, but there are a couple of things to, that I think are relevant here. One of the things is that with the supplemental earners, people have a very low value for their free time, many of them. On the other hand, for the, the more dedicated workers, the hours matter because those are hours that they, they've got to earn on, whereas for the others, they don't. So you've got that kind of discontinuity in the labor force. The other thing is that even if they figure it out, you've got some of these people who just don't have alternatives. Um, and that's where the labor force has really changed over time to a group of people who are more desperate and without, without choices. And, of course, the standard labor market model in economics assumes that people have plenty of choices and they'll, they'll move out. I think you're right that the more information people have, the better they will be able to challenge the companies and you may see more exit um, the one thing I'd say to it, though, that's interesting is they, a lot of them are on these uh, forums that we studied, and the forum has lots of information. This is where you need a behavioral economics explanation for what's going on, because the, um, there's the difference between the, the current moment, and there's a lot of discounting of the future of, like, thinking about the taxes that you're going to have to pay or the new car that you're going to have to pay in the future where people are, they're focusing on the, the, the current, uh, current economics and they get into trouble in part because of that. Um, and a lot of these people understand they're making less than minimum wage. But it's also true that those non-pecuniary benefits that I talked about really matter to a lot of these people. They don't want a boss. They like to drive. And so we have a world in which the society is allowing people to be exploited for that. They're not even getting a basic minimum wage. Um, so that seems like, at the very least, that's a first step that uh, these companies should not be allowed to do that. And then we can, you know, we can debate about how much less money should somebody get for the, the value of not having a boss or, or whatever. Is this economy even sustainable, especially when you start looking at the for-profit large companies like Uber. I'm just looking at Uber's 
their stock value is $51 billion. And it seems unlikely that maybe the whole market they're trying to take over is worth that much. It's kind of like, it's, it's, it's fantasy money. Is this even sustainable for, for a long period of time? The argument that I was making is that it's not. Many of these platforms have a business model that can only work for a much smaller market with much higher prices. So that can be sustainable. So yes, we can have a ride hail market in this country, but it's going to be far fewer drivers and far fewer passengers. And they're going to pay more and it's going to look more like what taxi was in terms of size. Airbnb is very sustainable. The online freelancer markets are sustainable. Amazon Mechanical Turk, which is the really low end where you get paid pennies for human intelligence jobs and so forth, is sustainable because it's a global market and they have a huge number of people who are willing to work for these pennies and that technology makes it very possible. We can go back to that New York Times quote because I think that really nails it in certain ways. And what these platforms did was they basically created servants for ordinary people, not just for rich people who could always afford servants, but it's a slice of a servant. You know, it's an hour of a servant's time or a half hour of a servant's time. And that, I think, is not sustainable in a world where the middle class just doesn't have that much money or really will want to spend it when those services get priced at their true cost. And that's maybe the bottom line of part of what I was saying. And it, it's, I think, you know, a big part of the explanation for why these platforms have gotten so exploitative. One other thing I want to say that's really important, we haven't, I haven't talked at all about the politics of this and, you know, why Uber got so powerful so quickly. And it's a point that it's really been missed, which is that they investors in Uber were some of the most powerful companies in the country. Goldman Sachs, Google, and, you know, many others of a similar ilk. So when they were up against these city regulators, you can imagine, you know, how much clout they had. The last thing I'll say on the VCs is one of the things I witnessed early on was one of the leading investors in the quote-unquote sharing economy, big Uber investor and others, at a conference, uh, the sort of coming out conference of the sharing economy. And this guy got up there and he just talked about sharing and how wonderful this all was. And, you know, it sounded just like Devin, who I started my talk with, about how it's a new economic model and a way we're going back to the past and we're all going to live in a little village and be nice to each other. And, And, you know, I suppose on some level he believed it. And it just shows how deluded and how powerful that idealist discourse was. Thank you. You were just listening to Juliet Shore on gig economics. She spoke at the University of Oregon in Eugene in mid-October. Juliet Shore is an award-winning economist and sociologist at Boston College. She's the author of many books, including True Wealth and After the Gig. 
This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent, progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Nancy Frazier, Arundhati Roy, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To order copies of today's program, Juliet Shore on Gig Economics, and for Noam Chomsky's new book, Notes on Resistance, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just give us a call, one 800 Matt Laubach recorded the program. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. This is CGSW 90.9 FM, Calgary. It ain't weird. You think you're normal? That's quite normal. That is unusual. Well, it's like a rabbit. He's got a head on him like a rabbit. (laughs) 